Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Looking at crude oil today, WTI up 6.2%. That's uh, to $33 and about three cents a, a barrel. That's after yesterday's 24.5% decline. Just extraordinary. The biggest decline since uh, 1991, the Gulf War. To get a sense of what's going on in the world of global crude, we welcome John Kilduff, founding partner for Again Capital. John's based in New York City. So, John, I want to go back just a couple of days ago and ask my fundamental question about global oil. What were the Saudis thinking? Uh, the, the Saudis, uh, you know, like nose got out of joint, or however you want to put this. I mean, they um, were quite exercised about the Russian position at the OPEC meeting. Uh, and when the Russians sort of stuck it to them and said, you know what, everybody can pump whatever they want come April 1st, because that's when this deal ends, the Saudis quickly uh, came together and decided to show the world what the uh, price landscape looks like if Saudi Arabia can pump whatever it wants. And they unleashed uh, a thermonuclear bomb on the, uh, on the oil market uh, with several uh, positions, provisions, uh, slashing mightily their, uh, their, their pricing scheme. They, they cut their uh, cost of uh, crude or offered price to their customers by over $10 a barrel. I've heard how you've, they, they, they are ramping up mightily. Uh, the latest this morning is that they're going to go to 12.3 million barrels a day next month. So that means they're going to be taking oil out of storage. I mean, it is just a, a throwdown by them of the first order. So, John, given that we're in a thermonuclear fission throwdown, throwdown uh, <laughs> uh, explosion Again, of a I bomb. I know. Uh, I love it. Uh, you know, given what we're dealing with in terms of both the uh, knockdown in demand as well as the increase in supply, why have we seemed to have found a bottom if you view uh, yesterday and today's action as, as anything? Well, I, you know, first, I think, first of all, um, there's still some hope in the market that cooler heads will, in fact, prevail. Uh, there's some talk that the Russians are regrouping themselves to maybe do a rapprochement with Saudi Arabia and try to maybe get cobbled back together some kind of deal. Also, too, there was a pretty swift reaction from several of the uh, U.S. oil producers, uh, ranging from Diamondback Energy to ExxonMobil. And uh, as a result of that, you know, we, uh, we should be seeing some demand or production response here in the U.S., rig cuts, production cuts, uh, a, a pullback on investment going forward. So, um, the market, uh, you know, found a bottom down around $27 uh, and bounced off that. And I think that uh, that's sort of the scorched, scorched earth number for now. So, John, in this throwdown between Saudi Arabia and Russia, who's got the stronger hand, do you think? Saudi Arabia by far. Uh, first of all, they have the low, lowest cost of production of any country by far. Uh, single digits, low single digits. That was in their uh, Aramco IPO disclosures. Um, as you've been seeing from some of the uh, palace uh, intrigue, too, over the weekend, uh, there's a consolidation of power there. Uh, the king and Mohammed bin Salman are firmly in charge uh, with an iron grip. Uh, not so sure you can say that about Russia if there's an extended uh, low price environment for oil. It uh, would knock the Soviet Union off its block back in the day. And, um, you know, Vladimir Putin and his government will start to feel pressure uh, if the price stays low for long. 
So logically, it doesn't seem like this benefits anyone, and it would seem to behoove everyone to come to the table, shake hands, pull that flag back up that was tipped over in the OPEC meeting on Friday, (laughs) and call it a day and get back to uh, negotiating. That said, this is not that, and it doesn't seem like that's going to happen, at least in the next few days. What do you think it's going to take? What's the tipping point when it comes to either the price of oil or the magnitude, the length of time uh, before they come to the table? It'll probably seven several months. Uh, you know, this was the ultimate lever for Saudi Arabia to pull. I mean, I've talked about this in the past or over the years. This trimming output only served to support, really, uh, the U.S. producers and other, and other higher-cost producers. Uh, they needed to get shaken out. The corollary for this is back in uh, 1998 when pre-Hugo Chavez Venezuela tried to compete for U.S. oil market share. And the Saudis taught them and the market a lesson back then and cratered oil prices down to eight bucks a barrel. The U.S. oil industry in particular was hammered. And uh, there was a lost decade or so or more of U.S. production that was really moribund and, and what helped to ultimately generate the 90 and $100 a barrel oil that we had lived through there for a while, which then finally encouraged the frackers to, to, to roll the bones again and get back in there. So... You know, this is going to take some time. It's going to wait for a response. But uh, it's certainly what the Russians wanted to have happen because they have their eye on the U.S. producers. Uh, I keep pointing to this uh, weekly inventory report from last week that the government puts out. It's 1030 every Wednesday. I know you guys cover it. Um, and that last week's report, record U.S. production, 13.1 million barrels a day and record U.S. crude oil exports of over 4 million barrels a day. The numbers were astounding. Right as they were heading into the OPEC meeting, I really still feel that was the trigger point for the Russian uh, position. So, John, just real quickly, 30 seconds. Um, how bad do you think this is going to get for the U.S. shale patch? It's going to uh, get rather bad. Uh, you know, there's going to be a, a host of, of bankruptcies and consolidations. Uh, and uh, we'll even have to keep our eye on, on some of the majors in terms of their ability to continue with the stock buybacks. It uh, looks like capital investments is going to go uh, by the boards first, and that's going to end up lowering U.S. output and achieving the ultimate goal here of Saudi Arabia and even Russia, for that matter, deal with some short-term pain for some longer-term gain. John Kilduff, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital, joining us as Oil tries to stage somewhat of a rebound, although off earlier highs. And after a absolutely an epic day for oil, epically yes. terrible day, uh, a record day when you saw the sell-off, particularly when it comes to energy stocks. talking a lot about the coronavirus, the effect on markets, the effect on businesses. What about the effect on the healthcare system? And this is an important topic. And we're lucky to have Susan DeVore, Chief Executive Officer of Premier uh, Incorporated, joining us on the phone. Susan, uh, you are in a premier place to actually see the issues here. You're uh, discussing with the government the potential vulnerabilities in the healthcare system. What are you finding? Yeah, we just briefed an administrative task force and Premier, you know, we're working 24-7. We've got 4,000 hospitals and 175,000 non-acute care providers. And what we're seeing is 
everybody is worrying about the current supply. The demand is three or four times uh, what normal demand would be. And because we have a fragmented system, what we're hearing is federal, state governments, and private healthcare systems really trying to figure out how to work together so as not to hoard supplies and to be able to get the supplies where they're needed. So, Susan, at this early stage here in the U.S., where are the bottlenecks? Where are the problems? Where are the areas that you're focusing on and the other folks in the industry are focusing on? Yeah, so Premier did a survey of all of our healthcare systems to to ask um, that very question. And, And what we're hearing and seeing in the data Uh, and in the responses is that people are most worried about the protective attire, the masks, the gowns. There is essentially a two-week supply of that. There are um, longer uh, term supplies of some of the other stuff, but the protective attire um, that really protects the healthcare workers, protects uh, the people who don't have the coronavirus, um, that is where very significant short-term Uh, challenges exist. I think longer term, uh, there are real challenges for nursing homes and non-acute care providers, and there are real challenges in the pharmacy supply chain. But in the short term, it's it's centered around right now a lot of the protective uh, equipment and attire. Susan, what's the historical precedent for this period for the healthcare system and the potential stress we may see there? You know, we have seen as a healthcare system a variety of, you know, H1N1 viruses and other um, kinds of of challenges. The spread of this one is creating um, what many people think will be uh, a significant demand. And when you couple that with our dependence on China and Southeast Asia for a lot of these products, we have sort of um, the perfect storm. We'll have very increased demand for these products and we'll have limited supply of the products because they're coming from places that, you know, have shut down that exportation. So we as a, a U.S. healthcare industry have to figure out how to optimize the use of the supplies we have. We've got to follow the CDC guidelines to conserve it. And we've got to figure out how we're going to get from what is a normal 25 million masks used a year to a supply of 500 million. So that is the magnitude of the challenge that we have. Susan, one of the problems for investors, certainly, but probably consumers in general, is getting kind of a mixed message out of Washington, uh, out of the administration and other uh, entities about kind of the extent of this, the severity of this, how we should prepare within the you know medical community. And again, you mentioned you've been on some conference calls with uh, interested parties. What's kind of the scenario analysis? The scenario analysis for premier healthcare systems and, and providers is that 90 plus percent of them are worrying about the supply and demand. And with the ability for this virus to spread, um, are they going to be able to protect their healthcare workers? And are we going to have enough supply for um, everybody that needs this protective attire? So I would say that healthcare systems are initiating policies to protect their employees. Many companies, healthcare and otherwise, are canceling travel uh, and limiting uh, large group meetings and those kinds of things. So we're we're trying to slow the or suppress the 
the spread of this. And at the same time, Premier is trying to unite all of these healthcare providers and work with the federal and state governments to to really try to ensure we have adequate supply of the of the products that are needed. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. We know you're incredibly busy and your team at Premier uh, kind of working through this as the healthcare community is in general. Susan DeVore, Chief Executive Officer for uh, healthcare services company Premier that's based in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Right now, let's get a sense of what's going on in Italy. More news coming out there as they extend, expand the uh, travel ban uh, to or lockdown, if you will, f- to the entire country. Ferdinando Giuliano uh, is an editor for Bloomberg Opinion based in Milan. Ferdinando, thanks so much for joining us. It just seems to be no end in sight in Italy. Can you give us the latest on what's going on uh, in Italy? Well, the latest is that uh, the prime minister decided to uh, uh, extend uh, this lockdown, which we've had in uh, the region of Lombardy around Milan and in a number of other northern provinces uh, to the whole of the country. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that people can't leave their home. This is not like Wuhan in China. You're allowed to uh, leave your house, but only for work-related, health-related reasons, or if you need to go and do some uh, food shopping. Uh, uh, on top of that, there are a number of uh, big restrictions on, uh, for example, uh, you know, things like gyms, swimming pools, uh, ski slopes are all closed. Uh, football matches have been cancelled together with any sporting activities. Uh, and uh, you've had the schools are closed until the start of April. And uh, the, the government doesn't want people to uh, do even uh, small gatherings outside in parks. Uh, they're, they're really trying very hard to enforce, uh, um, you know, this uh, social distance, as they call because they think this is the only way to stop this outbreak. Ferdinando, there is the immediate concern just stopping the spread of the coronavirus. Italy seeing the cases explode and they're trying to prevent that. They're also getting some other countries in Europe closing their borders to Italy, trying to stave off the spread into their nations. There's also a larger question if you take a step back and not to take away from the humanitarian issue of people getting very ill and dying. Um, But taking a step back, Is democracy equipped to handle this as well as, say, an authoritarian regime like what we've saw in China, where they just basically shut down entire cities and had the uh, authority to throw people in jail if they didn't comply? Well, that's the question which I tried to, you know, pose in a column uh, recently. Uh, Now, um, clearly it's harder. I mean, uh, here the government really has to convince people to stick by the rules. Uh, yes, there are policemen going around and uh, you need to prove to the policemen that you're going to work. Uh, there are fines and even jail, small jail terms for people who break the rules. Uh, but, you know, it's incredibly hard to uh, enforce this. It's all down to really uh, persuasion and uh, conviction. Uh, now, the good news I find is that South Korea seems to be uh, at last, um, you know, containing uh, the virus quite effectively. South Korea is a democracy. Of course, it's an Asian democracy. They have different tradition, different culture, and they had the experience of SARS, uh, which really taught them uh, an important lesson. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, I still think Western democracies can do it. I just think they need to take measures, and I don't see other countries across Europe or even the United States 
uh, doing the same, unfortunately. So, Fernando, we, we know there's been uh, cases have been generally limited to the north of Italy. How has it has it progressed in the southern part of the country? If so, to what degree? And do you expect the, the folks in the south to follow this as well? More slowly. I mean, the, the, the big outbreak was here in southern Lombardy, and uh, this is a big concern for the government. I mean, what's outstanding, and I'm not sure people have quite grasped this, is that the healthcare system in Lombardy, the region around Milan, is one of the best in Europe. You know, access is very easy and free, and, uh, and the healthcare system is very efficient. And yet, they are overwhelmed with the number of patients, particularly people who need intensive care. There's just not enough, uh, you know, bed to, uh, or uh, around to help uh, the, the increasing quantity of people. Now, southern Italy is poorer, and uh, uh, the healthcare system is uh, less effective there. So the government is trying really hard to contain the outbreak now because the fear is if it moves south, you're not going to be able to have the kind of response which you're seeing from doctors and nurses here in regions like Lombardy, which has been just outstanding. Ferdinando, there's this perception out there, and it's been edified by a number of stories that people in Italy are, are basically, not dismissive, but they're going out and they're saying, basically, I'll drink some wine and it'll be fine. Is that the mood when you go out and when you're on the street or are people taking some of the curbs seriously? Look, I mean, I think last weekend there was an issue with, uh, um, you know, uh, some people. You saw photos of uh, of crowds which were uh, gathering outside. You know, there were, it was a sunny day and... Uh, uh, people were uh, making uh, the most of it. Part of it is, is natural. You know, you don't think this is going to happen to you. But there is also, a, a, if you want, a generational problem. Uh, young people feel they uh, are kind of immune of, you know, from this virus because if you look at the lethality of the virus, it's mainly for older people. And, uh, and so uh, they go around as they think they have very little to fear. Now, that's not completely true because you do see uh, people maybe in their 20s and 30s who, 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 who can have serious consequences of the virus, but it creates uh, a problem. Now, the government is trying very hard on clamp, clamping down on this. For example, they shut down the ski slopes, uh, which was uh, one of the you know, images last week, yeah. which caused some um, problem. Uh, let's see whether it works. Ferdinando, thank you so much for being with us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we appreciate all your reporting and insights. Ferdinando Giuliano, a Bloomberg Opinion editor, joining us uh, from Italy, where the nation is shut down currently. We are seeing the sell-off wane a bit. We had seen gains up uh, over 3%. Now the NASDAQ up 2.2%. We are, though, getting a sense of just the incredible volatility, this wish to buy the dip that we saw yesterday that was the worst one-day sell-off since the financial crisis in the United States and, frankly, the world, which raises a question. Are we fundamentally in the same place that we were three weeks ago, just with a virus that needs to be dealt with, gotten rid of, and then we can resume the rally and the buy everything, and then there is no alternative trade? 
or are we in a fundamentally new situation that is much more likely uh, poised for a recession? Joining us now, David Katz, Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors, based in New York, joining us by phone so we don't give each other coronavirus. David, I'd love to get your sense here. I mean, on a day like yesterday, with such violent moves, not only in stocks, but very much in bonds, government bonds, absolutely surging, yields ripping to new lows, credit selling off with the high-yield energy sector, seeing its biggest one-day move in spreads since or ever, actually. Um, were you buying? Were you standing back? What was the mood? So the mood is clearly very worrisome. However, if you um, have been through these before, and unfortunately or fortunately, we've been through them for quite a long time. We've been doing this for about 35 years. We think we're in a tail end of a panic, uh, significant bear market sell-off. And the key to being successful as an investor is not to get caught up in the mania of the moment. So not to lock into 30-year bonds that are paying 1% for 30 years, which is absurd, uh, and not to get scared out of stocks. You know, uh, we think that the coronavirus ultimately uh, will be able to be handled. Uh, hopefully, there will be some sort of a treatment. Hopefully, the governments will start to do better in terms of can- containing it. Uh, and we think that the economic slowdown that you're going to see in the first and second quarters uh, as a result of this, are going to be reversed at least by half in the third and fourth quarters. And if you look at crises uh, historically, the market's going to discount the negatives and start to look for the recovery. So the moral of that is take a uh, longer-term view, 9 to 12 months, you're able to buy some great businesses at great prices. Uh, you're going to feel stupid uh, a day later, a week later, a month later, but there's an enormous likelihood stocks are going to be a lot higher 12 months out. So, David, if I do have the courage to look through to the other side, what are some names I should be thinking about here? What are some kind of strategies I should be thinking about? So, we're going to give you a, a list of, of names that are sort of low risk. They're paying about a 4.5% income stream. So, you're getting paid while you wait. Compare that to getting a 0.6 in a 10 year bond. So, names like ATT, AbbVie, uh, CVS, Cisco, Home Depot, JP Morgan, Merck. PNC, Verizon, uh, Viacom, and Wells Fargo, uh, 10 great businesses selling at 10 times earnings, 4.5% yield. And interestingly, they're really not going to be negatively impacted by the coronavirus. You know, their business might be down a, a little bit, but it definitely is not going to be severely impacted. And, and these businesses are worth uh, as much today as they were three months ago, and you're getting them at a great price. What's your time horizon? Uh, we're looking at nine to 12 months. We think things will be a lot higher. I mean, quite possibly if there's any sort of relief in terms of the coronavirus, uh, it could happen quicker. But as an investor, be prepared for stocks to go lower first. Uh, when you have a big problem like the coronavirus or the uh, oil price war that took hold yesterday, you get very big solutions. So you're starting to hear both the U.S. government and the global governments talking about uh, relief, whether it's on a monetary or fiscal policy. Uh, Science is going to kick in in a huge way. There are enormous incentives for companies to find uh, treatment for this. Hospitals are going to start to do better. So uh, what generally happens is when you have a crisis, people straight line the crisis, assume it lasts forever. Uh, and usually there are uh, solutions along the way. Argu- now, having said that, we 
sorry. You no, go. I, but, but arguably, that's exactly what was being priced into the market this morning before it opened with the rally that we saw. And it's being stifled a bit by news out of CNBC in particular, where they're reporting that the White House may not release any details on any kind of fiscal stimulus today, as they had said that they would yesterday. I'm just wondering, let's say we don't get a response uh, on the fiscal side. What then? Well, you, you know, everybody is immediate gratification oriented. The reality is whether the government comes out with a response today or they come out with a response next week, there will be a response. You know, this is a crisis. The economy is slowing substantially. Uh, the government needs to react. They need to take actions that will protect workers so that if you're sick, you can stay at home and, and self-quarantine yourself and still get paid. Uh Big problems will result in big solutions. So whether it's today or it's in a few days, it's going to happen. And, and as I said earlier, the key is not to get caught up in the day-to-day movements of the market because you're not going to get that relief. You're not going to have a bell ring that says, okay, it's all clear to buy. You're going to buy. Things will go lower. But there's a great likelihood if you were to buy some of the names on the list that we gave you um, that by year end, they could be 20 to 40% higher uh, and you're getting that dividend along the way. You know, contrast that to locking in 0.6 for the next 10 years, which is just patently absurd. So, David, again, if, do I think about taking on even maybe a little bit more risk here? I look at maybe the cruise lines or the travel companies that have been hit the hardest here down dramatically. Is it time to kind of say, hey, before the coronavirus, these were good businesses and they're likely to return to being good businesses? So we would not be that bold. Um, you know, so in terms of the cruise lines, they have huge capital expenses. And if the ship goes out or they have to cancel cruises, they really do lose money and they can have a cash crunch. So we would avoid things like that. Uh, we do think if you have a 24-month time horizon, they probably will be higher. They could go down first. The flip side of that is a company like bookingsholdings.com. Um, they book travel, and what they have uh, shown historically is you have a significant uh, downturn in bookings during a crisis, but as soon as the health issues uh, are off the front page, people do book uh, in terms of hotels uh, and airlines. Uh, they are still making money during this downturn. They're buying a lot of stock back. So we've looked at it. We're not ready to act on it. If you really wanted to swing for the fences, uh, we think this is probably one of the more reasonable ways to play it. Uh, but what's happened also is the financials are getting marked down as if we're in a financial crisis. Uh, and as a result, you're able to buy businesses that are really not going to be that adversely impacted and are still going to come back really good. So, you know, you, you don't have to play uh, the travel stocks, well, we think there's so many stocks out there and a lot of them less exposed. I had mentioned Viacom, the stock's at 19 and a half. We think that company could easily, easily be at 40 or 60 uh, in the next wow. few years. Uh, so we'd rather speculate on something like that than you know, go into yep. things that are really being hurt. Hey, David, thanks so much for your thoughts, and we appreciate you uh, giving us some of those names to maybe take a look at here for those, again, willing to look through to the other side of this uh, uh, crisis here. David Katz, Chief Investment Officer for Matrix Asset Managers uh, based in New York and calling us uh, on the phone. We appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.